Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's special episode, Anastasia Capetis speaks to some of the team behind Aspie's research on Xinjiang about their recently launched Xinjiang Data Project. Aspie's Kelsey Munro and Nathan Rusa, with James Liebold, Senior Aspie Fellow and Head of Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University, discuss their research which extensively mapped out 380 detention facilities in Xinjiang that have been built or expanded on since 2017. They also talk about the destruction of mosques and other significant Uyghur cultural sites in the region and the potential global implications of China's treatments of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Here's their conversation now. Um, hi, my name is Anastasia Capetis. I am the National Security Editor uh, here at the Strategist at ASPE. Today we're going to be talking about the Xinjiang Project, which is this really big body of work that ASPE has been doing over the last 18 months, two years. And we're going to be talking about uh, about this with some of the main protagonists on the project, Kelsey Munro, James Liebold, who's joining us from Latrobe in Melbourne, uh, and Nathan Rusa. Welcome. Thank you. Hi, yeah, good to be here. First of all, Kelsey, I might throw to you first. Can you give us a, a brief overview of the Xinjiang project and the kinds of things that you've been doing? Yeah, sure. So I guess broadly the Xinjiang work is kind of a, a body of work that Nathan, among other colleagues, has worked on for more than two years now, starting with documenting the detention camp system in 2018. A key project was the forced labour report, Uyghurs for Sale, which was funded by the UK Foreign Office earlier this year that documented the program of transferring Uyghur workers across China and forced labour assignments. That's been a hugely impactful report. And subsequently, just recently, we've launched the Xinjiang Data Project, which is a website that collates all that work, documents over 380 detention facility sites in Xinjiang, and also brings together um, research on cultural erasure and the destruction of mosques in Xinjiang. So several pieces, a lot of it you can see on the the Xinjiang Data Project website, which is (laughs) xjdp.asb.org.au. Thanks. So in terms of um, what we're going to talk about today, uh, we're going to start off with talking about Nathan your work on detention camps. China has been constantly saying this year that um, that they're winding down re-education of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, um, that everything is, uh, that, that their work is done. What have you been finding? Yeah, so the Chinese narrative about these this detention regime has shifted a fair few times. So initially they outright denied their existence and they sort of described them as necessary projects to to train and to alleviate poverty in the region. And then they said that they were necessary for counterterrorism. Each time that narrative has changed, it's changed because wealth of information, the wealth of the depth of evidence that contradicts their claim has built up and made that sort of incorrect claim untenable. So the most recent narrative that's sort of being being used is that in Xinjiang, these vocational training centres have ended everyone has graduated and no one is detained anymore that is very much contradicted by our research that found in the months preceding the that announcement and in the months since about 60 facilities have actually seen significant expansion including about a 
facilities that still remain under construction. Um, so all in all, it's very clear that although the growth of these camps may, may have slowed, their growth is continuing. And a number of these facilities seem very enduring and seem very permanent. So that then, yeah, that contradicts what has been said, at least is the official Chinese narrative now. So it will be interesting to see what they shift to next. I was just going to jump in on the back of that and just say, I think available evidence uh, suggests that we're entering a kind of new phase where um, the vast majority of uh, people who were detained in these extrajudicial camps uh, who are deemed to have been uh, able to complete their study and are, are seen as reasonably politically reliable are being sent back uh, to their communities or put into these um, forced labor uh, programs. Uh, and a small but yet significant uh, number of people are being more formally detained uh, through the judicial process and put in um, what we were able to document as more maximum security uh, detention centers whose purposes are not necessarily re-education but rather the removal of people from society. Um, and that was really what was what my next question was going to be to Nathan, which is like these new camps that are being built, uh, are they different in character? Do they have different uh, security settings? Do they have different... Um, uh, detention kinds of settings. Are, are you seeing that kind of difference happening? Yeah, so architecturally they're very, they're very different. The re-education camps, which are sort of slowly being phased out to some extent, they're very much like a normal building that's been upgraded at its security. So it has maybe an updated gate, it has higher walls around it, it has internal fencing that limits the movement of people. But these detention facilities, these the ones that we don't deem have any sort of re-educative value or vocational training value and are simply to remove people from society, those ones, instead of having a maybe a three-metre high wall around the outside, have an eight-metre wall along the outside with watchtowers every few hundred metres. Right. They're, yeah. they're a lot more highly securitised. And more specifically, they're built in a way that is intrinsically high security rather than other facilities that have been made high security. Yeah, so they're, they're, their purpose is clear from, from the get-go, in, in a sense. So just to, you know, to sum up, uh, if you're um, the Communist Party hierarchy and you're looking at Xinjiang policy and how that's worked over the last six years, do you think um, the, the party is feeling happy about what it's achieved in Xinjiang? Or does it? Do you think it assesses that it has a lot further to go? I would imagine um, that the Communist Party sees its program in Xinjiang as a success because it touts that success in sort of counterterrorism around the world. It says it stabilised the population, the people there are now living happy, productive lives. That's the line. But I, I do think there probably is some degree of commitment to that idea within the Communist Party leadership because they have not had terrorism incidents, and that is one of the sort of purported reasons mm -hmm. yes. to down in the first place. But I would be interested to see what James's take is on that. I think the view from Beijing most certainly is that the policy has been successful due to the return of stability to the region, the decline of the number of, uh, of, uh, of attacks and resistance. Uh, but at the same time, I think the party remains concerned about how its policies in Xinjiang are viewed internationally. Um, and they used a tremendous amount of resources to 
cast out uh, misinformation, disinformation on the issue of Xinjiang, as well as uh, you know, bring uh, reporters and diplomats from from countries around the world to Xinjiang to to sow its uh, its counter narrative of there's nothing here mm. unusual, no, nothing here. Um, and, and 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 most recently at the the most uh, last uh, sitting of the UN uh, Human Rights Council, we saw. Uh, some movement I- in some countries uh, away from supporting China and its policies in Xinjiang. So uh, I think this situation continues to evolve over time. Okay, I'd really like to come back later on in this discussion to unpick some of those more global implications. Just briefly again, for Beijing, are there any real lessons from this period, do you think, that they uh, have learned? Are there any mistakes apart from, uh, you know, that damages to international reputation, just say they're going to roll it out elsewhere in the country, maybe Tibet, maybe uh, other areas that might become problematic over time. What do you think they've learned from Xinjiang? Well, I can start us. I mean, I actually think this uh, mentality of re-education um, is deeply rooted in Chinese political culture, an idea that human beings are perfectible, uh, but yet also uh, unequal, um, have different levels of quality or this Chinese concept of suzure, um, and the party state as an enlightened uh, and benevolent ruler is responsible for improving the quality of its human population. And there's a range of ways in which it goes about doing that, and some of these are, are, are more carrots than sticks, but certainly we've seen in the case of Xinjiang the use of pretty coercive uh, methods uh, that, while not completely unprecedented, um, you know, there were re-education camps during Maoist uh, China, are, are perhaps on a scale that we've never seen in uh, modern Chinese history. Now, will they seek to use, uh, uh, you know, set up re-education camps in Hong Kong or Tibet or Inner Mongolia, I, I don't think so at this stage. It was a, a pretty extreme response to what they perceived to be a pretty extreme threat to their uh, sovereignty, which are, in, in my view is uh, completely overblown. You've seen sort of some reports and some limited media reporting that similar policies are sort of flowing out to Tibet, especially in the forced labor programs, mm-hmm. where sort of you had Chen Quan Guo come in from Tibet to Xinjiang and sort of develop and build on these, the, the coercive method of governance that they developed in Tibet, and now it's sort of being exported back the other way, which I think is interesting. Um, what James sort of talked about with that governance through carrots and sticks I think is interesting as well. You've seen in Xinjiang a very big shift from maybe not carrots, but you've seen a very big shift to the stick and very coercive measures of control that basically dictate every single person's life for every minute of every day. And I think that potentially is the lesson that they're learning to see success through that lens. And you're seeing similar coercive measures being sort of implemented onto people in Inner Mongolia or implemented sometimes onto people of faith in mainland China that potentially shows the the impact of this coercive governance rather than sort of mutual benefit for everyone. Kelsey, would you agree with that? Yeah, I was just thinking about something James wrote a a couple of years ago talking about a a sort of Chinese government view of society as a systems engineering project. So the idea, and James will explain this much better than I will, but 
the idea of they think if you're getting the wrong inputs, you'll get the wrong outputs. So if you can tweak the inputs, you, you can stamp out counterterrorism by stamping out religiosity in the population and you'll get, therefore, no more extremists at the other end. That's a very simplified version. But mm, I it find all starts that, with culture. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating. It's a very, very different approach to sort of Western ideas that prioritise the individual to have a sort of a systems engineering approach to a population management and if you think uh, of where that might lead, I mean, there are methods of surveillance and control are actually quite crude at present, uh, whether they be throwing massive subsidies or, you know, uh, rewards of people for doing the right sorts of things or uh, detaining people in re-education camps. These, these are quite crude levers. And ultimately, I think what party planners hope to be able to do is use more uh, automated forms of surveillance uh, of human behavior. So things that we're starting to see with the development of the social credit system, uh, as well as more um, tech-enhanced forms of surveillance, which result in humans self-regulating their behavior and uh, self-monitoring in, in a way that is conducive to party control. I think that's the ultimate aim, um, yeah. but I think what we see it president um, is that the ambition in terms of high-tech uh, control and surveillance um, outstrips the the actual reality which tends to be a, a mix of uh, yeah. a mix of the two I, th I find what you're saying really interesting because it's very close to the kinds of things and cultures that um, that Silicon Valley has already al always encouraged which is that self-monitoring self-hacking tracking yourself um, responding to algorithmic prompts and also, you know, the idea that technology and through through algorithms can endlessly nudge human behaviour. Is, is that the kind of thing that you think, uh, you know, the Chinese system is evolving to? So less, less overt stick, more integrating itself uh, into people's daily lives in a more seamless way, but nonetheless powerful, powerfully nudging um, and manipulating in those particular ways. I think it's also important to add that, you know, this was really probably pioneered in Silicon Valley uh, before it was implemented in China. I think the difference though is that in the West we have a, a reasonably, well, we have a quite robust media and uh, a, a kind of more transparent view of, of those processes. We, met, we don't know the algorithms, but we kind of know uh, some of the human inputs into it. Uh, where in the case of China, all this is really happening behind the cloak of secrecy. Um, and so it's hard to know in an authoritarian setting uh, what the end results will be. There's also, I guess, that difference in accountability as well, whereas any sort of um, tracking technology developed by Chinese social media companies to use in Chinese markets doesn't really have that accountability to the press that James mentioned, but it also doesn't have a government that's sort of, in some ways at least, mindful of that tracking and sort of seeking to limit it. So you've seen with Facebook, for example, the the amount of information that you can scrape from Facebook has decreased a lot since it's had media attention on it and since it's had pressure on it. And you very much don't see that in China. And when it comes to Xinjiang itself, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that policy in Xinjiang and this sort of ecosystem of coercive control can exist through just that nudging. I think it does require mm -hmm. that coercive backbone. And mm. the infrastructure and the detention infrastructure that you're seeing sort of supports the idea that that is going to be a part of the policy moving forward. However, 
mainland China is probably a pretty different story. Shall we move on to the culture, uh, culture, cultural erasure report, or do you guys have any other comments on d- the detention camp work? So another sort of the other flip side of this coercive governance in Xinjiang is that it's a strictly controlled information environment. The only information that comes out really basically official channels and official state-friendly media. Um, and any anyone that sort of tries to share what the reality is that isn't shaped through this propaganda lens themselves would be at risk of being detained. And you've seen, you've seen, I think, scores, I think it was 50 plus activists that were sort of trying to get information out, having been disappeared in the last couple of years for that reporting. So Xinjiang is this very opaque environment where there's no, genuinely no objective information coming in and out. And that's where the satellite imagery is useful in sort of the pursuit of this expansive detention regime. They've had to make significant changes to the infrastructure of Xinjiang. You've seen residential communities demolished. You've seen security checkpoints put up in every corner. And you've seen, I guess, most of all, these detention facilities being constructed. And this is something that, although you can't get meaningful access to information or to the ground Mm -hmm. in Xinjiang, you can still sort of get this. And you can get this through a variety of different sort of independent sources, that together build a very comprehensive picture of at least the physical changes in Xinjiang since the crackdown began. And because it is such a coercive, such an expansive and such a brutal crackdown, there have been a lot of physical changes. It's not, it's not one of those more mm. subtle rights abuses that's difficult to monitor from space. So just briefly, do you, have you just used Google Earth or have you used other satellite imagery services? Google Earth has been super helpful in that they actually have, I think, made a concerted effort to purchase and provide as much satellite imagery of Xinjiang as possible. Mm-hmm. So Xinjiang is much more regularly updated than other parts of the world. But sometimes where Google image, Google Earth hasn't been enough, we've used other sources. And especially when we're looking at sort of more novel analysis, like multi-spectral analysis or nighttime mm-hmm. analysis, mm-hmm. then Google doesn't help. But no. yeah, I think... <laughs> For anyone, sort of just anyone coming in on the ground level and looking at Xinjiang, Google has sort of made a concerted effort to have more than enough material for anyone to look through. It's kind of amazing development for investigators um, globally is that now that you you actually can harness the kinds of capabilities that uh, very powerful states have in terms of geoint. So um, I think that gives an immense amount of power to investigators in the space. And Anastasia, one of the things we really wanted to do with the Xinjiang Data Project was to make all this uh, information available to researchers, journalists, uh, or ordinary citizens who are interested in this uh, to allow them to explore our data, uh, to help us to kind of crowdsource the efforts to update and, and, and keep it fresh. And, um, you know, it's, in some regards, the, the launching of the website and putting that data up there was really just really the beginning point. And it will be interesting to kind of track these facilities over time and see how they evolve and change. Absolutely. Um, just from my perspective, it's an incredible resource for governments and, and citizens as well. And I think it'll be really interesting for me to have a look at how, how much impact that has on projects like yours encountering that disinformation from China, um, building up and building up that empirical uh, research base that then anyone can use to push back against that, that China narrative on Xinjiang. Shall we have um, a chat about the most recent report that you guys have released, the Cultural Erasure Report? So what gave you the idea to look at cultural erasure? 
Well, beyond the coercive background, you've seen this very concerted effort to engineer culture and to engineer in, in kind of in, kind of in reference to what James was talking about earlier, this idea that humans that are undesirable can be improved. And then authorities in Xinjiang consider religiosity to be a gateway to terrorism is a very ind- indicative sign of how they've treated Xinjiang more generally. And you've seen um, these efforts to restrict Uyghur culture, Uyghur faith and Uyghur identity, along with other non-Han nationalities in Xinjiang, by the removal of signposts of this identity and this culture, along with the removal of public spaces to sit in their faith and to sort of have, to appreciate their culture. So we've heard this from a lot of people, that mosques have been demolished, that graveyards have been razed, that shrines have been removed. And so we wanted to, again, look at that look at that through the satellite perspective and try to get a try to quantify these changes mm. so if we know what percentage of mosques have been destroyed in Xinjiang we can work out what number roughly has been have been demolished likewise with cemeteries or shrines mm-hmm. that's another advantage of this sort of desk-based open source research in that apart from the fact you can't in political terms access Xinjiang we're able to locate I think was it 900 cultural yeah, sites, more than 900 sites through through being able to do it through satellite imagery analysis. And then how we did it was sort of generate a, a random sample of sites pre-2017, see what state they were in, and then assess them more recently to see what proportion of them had been damaged or destroyed. And that was able to sort of generate an estimate of the rate of destruction region-wide. If you could just give us a sense of why is cultural erasure important here? Let me try to, to, to sketch out a little bit of the, uh, the context of it. Um, so this is part of China's, uh, the Chinese Communist Party's ongoing nation-building project, an attempt to uh, redefine Xinjiang, its history, its culture, and its identity, rather than view it, as many Uyghurs do, as the homeland of an indigenous uh, Uyghur people. The Chinese government argues it's um, been part of Chinese territory from time immemorial, that it was rather than a, a cultural homeland, it's been a, a melting pot of different cultures and different ethnicities, with, of course, the Han Chinese being the kind of driving force of the, uh, of the development of the region. Um, and so there, this part of cultural erasure also has an, uh, an element of, of cultural rewriting. It's to, to recast the, the physical landscape of Xinjiang, but also its uh, preserved sites and its, um, a, a, and its history as taught in schools and uh, universities. Um, and, and, and so this is why trying to kind of document this is so important because it counters that narrative that culture in Xinjiang is being preserved and protected and that, you know, it's a, a happy meeting place of different cultures and different, different identities. Um, obviously, in, in the pre-times, Xinjiang was a, a real centre of tourism, Silk Road tourism. It was, um, you know, obviously seen as, as a jewel of Islamic culture. Does the Chinese government care about uh, reinstating any of that um, in terms of its tourism to the, to the area, which was a, a big foreign currency earner? Um, back in the 90s and the 2000s. Is that, is that something that Beijing thinks about at all? Or is now the area pretty much just going to be a permanent? No, I think, I think tour, tourism is really important. Um, and uh, they tout the return of tourists. Uh, this is part of what 
they deem to be one of the success indicators of their policies. Um, but what they want to create is a kind of uh, carefully curated form of, uh, of tourism where, uh, where visitors can see you know, Beijing's narrative on display. And that doesn't mean the complete erasure of uh, Islamic uh, sites. Um, you know, some mosques uh, have, have been preserved and, you know, tourists can still visit them. But what we uh, set out to do is kind of look at areas outside of those major tourist sites like mm-hmm. Kashgar, Turapan and Urumqi, uh, you know, the kind of prefecture or county level towns that are mm-hmm. very rarely visited by uh, tourists. And what we found is if you examine those places closely, uh, there's been a pretty concerted effort to to erase Islamic and Uyghur uh, culturally significant sites, um, as well as the lived practice experience Islam, I assume as well. Yeah, I mean, take take um, and Nathan, have you talked a little bit about cemeteries? I mean, it's a fascinating thing that I, I knew very little about the burial customs in Xinjiang and what's happening there. Yeah, so basically, we've seen the traditional sort of burial methods, the traditional cemeteries, which in a way, it's, it's hard for me to sort of represent what's significant in Uyghur culture because it's not my culture. But in a way, you sort of see this connection between the cemetery, the gravesite, and the achievements of the person that was buried there, that their sort mm-hmm. of spirituality and their culture continues on in the physical location of the cemetery and of the gravesite. However, you've seen that sort of, um, I guess, characterised by Chinese authorities as backwards traditions and, um, yeah, I think backwards is the word that they've used. And you've seen in certain areas there a concerted effort to demolish these cemeteries to sort of upgrade, and I, I think they use the term, like, revitalise mm-hmm. these cemeteries, which basically re- means they're complete transformal from this traditional significant place of Uyghur culture and history to a very sterile, bland-looking cemetery with identical rows of identical graves. Yeah. Um, and you've seen this sort of done across across Xinjiang a lot, and you've seen broader than that restrictions on burials. You know that people have been detained for going to a funeral outside of a sort of approved cemetery, and so that beyond the physical removal of these these important cultural sites, you've also seen the effective outlawing of grievance and um, of death outside mm-hmm. of. The Chinese authorities' lens of what's okay and what's so, okay. So really, outlawing the metaphysical aspects of Islam as well. Yeah, I think within the Uyghur community, a lot you hear complaints about crematoriums and stuff, and it's it's unclear how sort of pervasive and how widespread they are across China. But the this shift in the rest of mainland China towards using less space and using crematoriums rather than grave sites is something that especially the Uyghur diaspora community finds very concerning and very, very threatening. I was just going to add to what Nathan was saying. I mean, part of the uh, preferential policies for ethnic minorities involves the right of them to bury their relatives uh, where, you know, you know cremation is the, the norm across China. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether we see a kind of shift because what we see in the larger policy landscape there's a kind of scaling back of these uh, preferential policies uh, to ethnic minorities, a kind of standardizing um, um, forms of, of, of burial. Um, so so it, we'll need to follow that closely. 
uh, as we go forward. But but I don't think there's any suggestions that what we're seeing in Xinjiang is uh, you know something akin to what happened in Nazi Germany, you know, with uh, the mass killing of of Uyghurs. Um, at least at least the, the evidence I've seen doesn't suggest mm-hmm. that at present. Support that. Yeah, so so far at least it looks as though most of the sort of burial cemeteries are continuing. I mean, most of the approved burial cemeteries are sort of being maintained and stuff rather than being converted into crematoriums. But again, yeah, that's a that's a development that I think people need to watch closely in the future. Do you know anything about how the CCP uh, in Xinjiang came up with a list of, of what kinds of cultural sites to target? What was their criteria? It kind of seems to be pretty random honestly from our look had to look at the sort of, I think it was a fair where well, we looked at a good number of sort of predictive variables that we tried to ascribe mm-hmm. sort of some sort of method or yeah. Yeah, we tried to statistically statistically look at it to see if there was anything that made a site more likely to be demolished. And what we found was a pretty random campaign that seems to sort of apply randomly no matter where you look in Xinjiang or what sort of facility that you look at. For example, we did find an entry in sort of a party academic journal that basically stated that the number of mosques is a concern, not the type of mosques, and recommend demolishing it to a sort of one mosque per administrative unit. Okay. Right. So that sort of shows the blanket sort of yeah. nature of that. Perhaps there is sort of more nuance in that that we sort of can't measure from space. At least from our understanding, it seems quite quite random. There does seem to be um, an effort to more thoroughly demolish significant sites that aren't protected and then with the significant sites that are formally protected to sort of neuter them and to make that an, in a, in an unavailable public space rather than to demolish the building entirely. Okay. Okay. But, yeah, it seems pretty sort of scattergun across Xinjiang, just everywhere's sort of affected by these these okay. demolitions. I just wondered if, if there were teams of cultural anthropologists um, that were being deployed to uh, you know, to target cultural sites in, in, in the most um, efficient way possible, but it does sound like from what you're saying um, they're kind of uh, essentially just learning as they go in terms of, you know, demolishing and erasing culture. Xinjiang's probably most prestigious cultural anthropologist was disappeared the same the same month right. that her sort of her life work in studying was demolished. Okay. So I, if you haven't sort of seen an effort generally to co-opt those into sharing information, you've just seen their detention. Okay. I should add that the Xinjiang um, is actually an active, still an active site of um, uh, of cultural preservation, but what is being preserved now is. Um, uh, sites and symbols of uh, revolutionary history as well as uh, previous Chinese uh, control over the region during the Han Dynasty and the Tang Dynasty. So there's, there's a concerted uh, decision being made about what, what is deemed worthy of preservation and what um, can be given away to uh, modernization and the construction of new shopping malls and residential buildings. Sometimes beyond just preservation, you see you see sort of significant sites and historical sites being built or being sort of revitalized. So, for example, we found near in the near the far western border of Xinjiang, we actually found a major town that was sort of redeveloped into this tourist historical precinct that was basically entirely built from scratch, but is one that 
reinforces this narrative of Han ownership over Xinjiang for centuries and for millennia. Basically, there are just there are two major streams that are allowed, um, which is CCP modernity and this idea of uh, of uh, kind of eternal Han Chineseness. Yeah, and that's how culturally the region is being reorganized. We might just move on to the global you know, implications of um, what you guys describe as, as the Xinjiang model, which is um, this model of ideology, technology, uh, camps, coercion, detention. What What do you think the most immediate global impacts have been of China's actions in Xinjiang? One of the things I think is most interesting and possibly most frightening is that the Chinese authorities have shown there's a way of essentially erasing a population's difference without committing actual genocide. So the, the combination of the detention camp system as a, as a sort of the coercive backbone, but with the pervasive surveillance. And there are debates about how effective mm-hmm. that is, but they're heading ever more in a, a more effective direction. But that model to, to completely control a population and remove, assimilate it into the, the majority is a really frightening model insofar as it's exportable. I mean, there are lots of things that are dependent on the Chinese bureaucracy and the party structure and political structures that have built up in China over a long time. But there are things like, I mean, a simple example is they've developed facial recognition technology that ethnically profiles people on the street. They've built that for, for, for Uyghur people in mainland China. Um, technologies like that have exportable technology to all to all sorts of weak democratic or illiberal states, and that is quite frightening. And the the sense of surveillance, pervasive surveillance as a sort of model of social control is something that I think we've only just begin begun to grasp the significance of. Um, it works in the forced labour context, it works in a whole of society context. Can you give us a bit of a personalised sense of what that surveillance might feel like on a day-to-day level? How does how does that feel for a weaker person in Xinjiang? Well, someone outside the camps will be monitored um, in the sense that they have an app on their phone, so the authorities can access um, where they are at any time. Their Xinjiang is sort of divided up, like a grid like into this sort of what do they call those? They have the convenience police stations. They have mm. sort of management. If every time you need to cross into different parts of the city, you, you're crossing through checkpoints that mm. have both technology that pull up your entire identification, all your history. Um, so, you're, so you're moving within a grid or a matrix of facial recognition technology. One thing that I remember is, it sounds off topic, but I was reading a report from a bird watcher that went to Xinjiang <laughs> quite recently and he was basically in that two-week trip, he spent 2,000 words or so of the, of the trip report just describing how pervasive that surveillance is, how random it seems, how mm-hmm. every single stop along the way is just so much compl- more complicated. You have to wait there for hours on end without really understanding what the security procedures are. At one point, police stopped him out the front of his hotel and made him shave his beard, for example, because beards are outlawed. And I, I, I think that's how that's how pervasive the security infrastructure is to a Western tourist visiting in a way that's at all politically sensitive. It's looking for birds. And basically he described it as the surveillance being so severe that there was 
no point going there. And that's what the experience is to someone that is sort of privileged enough to have a foreign passport and so on and so on, let alone someone that is the target of all of this coercive surveillance. Certainly tech-enhanced surveillance is... um expanded rapidly in Xinjiang, but of course the party still does use mass surveillance and one of the things the mass surveillance system has done is really penetrate down into the local village and right into the, literally into the, the home of Uyghur families. So the Chinese government has set up this uh, pairing um, scheme that pairs up um, Han officials with Uyghur uh, families where they're responsible kind of looking after their kin and making sure that their kin are on the, are on the right path uh, towards mm-hmm. Chinese-defined uh, development. Um, and, you know, so the, this this is a kind of intrusion in, in private space that we've just never seen in the past. And and, it, and it's, it's powered by um, tremendous uh, national resources as well as new financial uh, uh, investment in... Uh, policing at a local village, uh, so the employment of uh, additional police forces uh, to be the eyes and ears of the party at the very local level. This is so inc- so incredibly intrusive. In terms of the export of this kind of model, how much does it cost? When you're talking about the kinds of uh, inputs from the Chinese government, how much do you think? Just as a, a do you have a kind of ballpark estimate? How much does it cost to set up something as intrusive or pervasive? As, as what uh, the Chinese have in Xinjiang. There are figures available on sort of the investment of security forces and security infrastructure in the region that escaped me off the top of my head. Yeah. So I can't really give you that ballpark figure. But I think it's important to sort of, in the terms of exporting this, you've seen that China is quite happy to, I guess, subsidise the cost of exporting some of this technology, especially sort of in Latin America they've been willing to sort of take the first step and approach foreign governments about setting up at least the the surveillance backbone of this. Maybe that's different to the very um, intrusive personal surveillance that's in Xinjiang, but the sort of public security, yeah, public, security yeah. public surveillance, you've seen them quite happy to take the first step in exporting. One of the other dangerous exports in this, beyond the technologies itself, itself is just the idea of this algorithmic pre-policing mm-hmm. the fact that you can predict who is problematic predict who is troublesome by this big data collected algorithm and in the and doing so in a way that sort of arbitrarily and sort of almost indiscriminately when you look at it from an outsider's perspective targets tens of thousands hundreds of thousands or millions of people with this sort of algorithmic pre-policing i think for countries that look up to Chinese governance as a model of successful control and government. That idea of algorithmic pre-policing is is as dangerous as the physical exports. Yeah, just add really briefly. I mean, we do have figure, or the Chinese government does make figures available on uh, domestic security spending, uh, which has increased in recent years. Um, it's well known that China spends more on domestic security than they do um, uh, their military spending. But those figures kind of overlook the way in which the party's able to leverage additional resources, whether it be through these regional pairing schemes where you put pressure on uh, governments, uh, wealthy governments in coastal cities and provinces or factory owners to uh, to contribute to the cause or 
uh, party uh, party officials at various levels of the bureaucracy. So there's a lot of coercive hand twisting that uh, is used to to ensure the system uh, is able to draw upon uh, a tremendous amount of resources to achieve its aim. And so is forced labor part of this, James? Well, yeah, certainly, uh, you know, labor transfer uh, schemes have long existed uh, across China, but that we've seen them uh, really ramp up under Xi Jinping, an effort to uh, have have this, you know, to, to use labor as a part of the re-education process as well as sort of the poverty alleviation process. It goes both ways in terms of investments uh, in setting up factories in Xinjiang, as well as the transfer of, of workers uh, across China. And certainly there are many indications that uh, individuals who participate in these programs are not able to freely cho- choose how their labor is de- deployed and that the, there are, again, kind of coercive as well uh, as some, some carrots that, that push people, nudge people along into the system. The forced or coercive labor programs in Xinjiang, I think, serve a few purposes to the authorities. Firstly, they provide a way to very conveniently hit a number of sort of KPIs, I guess, when it looks at those those actual levels of, um, those nominal levels of poverty alleviation. They also allow the concentration of a lot of people far, far greater than within the camp system, it seems. The concentration of a lot of people in an easily surveilled, easily um, monitored, and easily controlled environment that you sort of is impossible in traditional villages that becomes excruciatingly easy in dormitories. Um, and it also provides them, I guess, the economic logic behind this. Where China more broadly has an issue with especially industri- industrial labour, where there's a growing middle class and a smaller and smaller segment of the population willing to work for these quite low wages. Um, you're seeing that, I guess, being supplemented, I guess, being leveraged through in China's sort of indus- internal economic sphere and also in an external market through forced labour programs. Okay, one last question for you guys, which is really about, given all of these findings in, in your in your projects, what does the international community need to do? Um, is it possible to um, control the export of these packages of surveillance technology is it possible to build international norms around the use of this kind of of uh, uh, of, tech, of of ideology and technology? What do you think? I think controlling exports is a notoriously difficult thing in the international sphere. But I think in terms of a coercive detention system on this scale, a country that's not China and doesn't have sort of the economic leverage that China has would struggle to pull it off. You've seen more and more countries being uneasy with the policies less and less countries supporting it. And I think that if you sort of saw that beyond the, the technology that enables it, if you saw that entire system being exported, there is, would probably be more international condemnation and maybe that won't matter condemnation. But I think what the international community can do perhaps more productively is look at limiting imports from Xinjiang mm-hmm. and restricting the market that products made in Xinjiang can go into. But also, um, generally, I think that needs to not just be a government-led thing, not just a company-led thing, but also a grassroots-led thing. You've seen policies like the anti-apartheid movement sort of affect so much change in South Africa. And I think that similar sense of indignation from the rest of the world 
is perhaps what could be more easily leveraged than mm-hmm. economic measures from the top down. Yeah, I agree. I, I would just also say that at its core, the sort of conflict that we're seeing in the world between is, is sort of between systems, it's between authoritarian and democratic systems. And one of, the, I think, the most important things that democratic systems and people living in them can do is actually call out these sorts of behaviours. Like there is so much silence around the world about Xinjiang and a lot of it is because the Uyghur diaspora have family at home that they're mm-hmm. frightened for. Um, but a lot of it is just com- commercial and corporate actors who fear retribution from China straying into political stuff. So part of it has to be about asserting democratic norms on the international stage. And I think export controls might be tricky, but democracies have to work together to start thinking about norms in how mm-hmm. we use and surveillance technologies um, and they have to do it very quickly because the technology is moving so far and so cheap so easily available but it has to be rooted in democratic values and transparency and I think that's a really key place to start and on that note that democracies need to sort of be more legitimate and be less intrinsically partisan about these issues where human rights abuses in a place that you don't like generates a lot of uproar, human rights abuses in a place you don't like get silenced. I think that does Thank you, all, all of you, for the discussion today and I wish you well in your next um, tranche of work on Shijan. Thanks, Thank Anastasia. You.